Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. If you're a horror film fan and haven't seen The Conjuring, you really should. It's a good movie with enough strategically placed scares to keep you entertained for an hour and 52 minutes. As the film opens, we're told that it's based on actual events. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear that something is based on actual events, I immediately get suspicious. I mean, you could say the same thing about just about any movie. Technically, Frosty the Snowman is based on actual events. It snows in the winter and kids make snowmen. What about the part where the magician's hat lands on him and he comes to life? And what about the part where he marches through the town with a group of kids in tow? Well, that all falls under the category of poetic license and suspension of disbelief. And that's the problem I have with The Conjuring. By saying that it's based on fact, moviegoers assume that the majority of what they're seeing really happened. In the case of The Conjuring, nothing can be farther from the truth. The movie is loosely, and I mean loosely, based on a trilogy of books written by Andrea Perrin called House of Darkness, House of Light. In it, she tells the story of how her parents purchased an old farmhouse in Rhode Island in 1971, and how her family was terrorized by ghosts and demonic forces for nearly ten years. But if you read the books, you'll see that the events depicted in the Conjuring movie don't even resemble the paranormal activity that the family experienced. In an interview, Andrea said, The Conjuring was a very well-made film. It just didn't tell the truth. It was based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, not on my books. There are so many glaring discrepancies between what actually happened and what ended up in the script and on film that it's virtually unrecognizable to our real story. The true story is far more intense than the film is and so different that it's incomparable. Now with that in mind, let's take a quick look at the plot of the movie, then I'll tell you what really happened when Carolyn and Roger Perrin and their five daughters moved into their haunted farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. In the movie, Carolyn and Roger purchase a farmhouse through a bank auction. They move in with their five daughters, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April. As soon as they move in, lots of strange things start happening. The clocks all stop at 3.07 a.m. A creepy-looking boy is seen in the mirror of a music box. One of the daughters gets pulled out of bed by her feet, and Carolyn finds mysterious bruises on her body. Soon, the girls begin smelling something like rotting flesh in their bedrooms, and they start seeing apparitions. One is a demonic-looking girl perched on top of a dresser, and another is a boy dressed in old-fashioned clothing. When the activity becomes too frightening to handle, Carolyn seeks the help of paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. 
The Warrens come to the house and they conduct an investigation. Lorraine picks up on the psychic impression of a woman hanging from the tree in the yard and of dark entities surrounding Carolyn and the children. Lorraine researches the house and finds that it was built in the mid-1800s by Jedson Sherman. His wife, Bathsheba, was related to a woman who was found guilty of practicing witchcraft in Salem and hanged. When their baby was seven days old, Jedson found Bathsheba trying to sacrifice the baby by the fireplace. She ran out of the house, climbed up a tree, proclaimed her love to Satan, cursed anyone who tried to take her land, then hung herself. The time of death was recorded as 3.07 a.m. Lorraine determines that everyone who took Bathsheba's cursed land is killed by her demonic spirit and that the parents are in great danger. The paranormal investigation culminates with Carolyn becoming possessed by Bathsheba's spirit. She tries to kill her daughter Cindy with a pair of scissors, but the Warrens stop her and perform an exorcism. Carolyn is freed from the demon and the family is grateful for the Warrens' help. So that's the movie in a nutshell. Now, before I tell you the chilling details of the true story of The Conjuring, there are a few things that you need to know. First, the three books that make up the House of Darkness, House of Light series are extremely long. Each book is around 500 pages, so we're talking 1,500 pages here. And an interesting side note about the books is that they're written in third-person narration, which is odd since the author actually experienced many of the terrifying events she writes about. By not writing in first person, she misses the opportunity to really personalize the story, but that's just my humble opinion. Now, because the book series is so massive, and because the family experienced so many creepy things in the ten years that they were living there, I'm only going to share some of the stories that Miss Perrin talks about in the books. I'll tell you a lot of stories, but there are simply too many to cover here, so I encourage you to read the books for yourself. Now, just to recap the characters in the story, Carolyn is the mother, Roger is the father, and Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April are the five daughters. Got it? Good. Now here we go. In the movie, the family purchased the farm through a bank foreclosure and they said that they never knew the former owners. In reality, Carolyn and Roger purchased the 200-acre farm from a man named Mr. Kenyon, who they got to know very well. The 14-room, 3,100-square-foot farmhouse was built in 1736. And while Mr. Kenyon never told the couple that the house was haunted, he did tell them to leave the lights on at night. He didn't explain why. So the couple naturally thought that it was because the house was so isolated that it got very dark at night. But from day one, strange things started happening at the farmhouse. The day the family was moving in, Roger handed his daughter Andrea a large box from the back of the moving van and told her to take it to her mother in the kitchen. As the twelve-year-old girl walked through the dining room, she saw an oddly dressed man standing in the corner near the cellar door. He was standing there looking at Mr. Kenyon, but the two men weren't talking. Andrea said good morning to the man, but he didn't respond. 
He just kept looking at Mr. Kenyon, so she continued on to the kitchen. Andrea handed the box to her mother and said, Who is that man with Mr. Kenyon in the dining room? Carolyn glanced into the dining room and said, There's no other man. Mr. Kenyon is by himself. A few minutes later, the other girls came into the kitchen. They said, There was a man in the dining room, but he just disappeared. So much was going on with the move that Carolyn didn't think anything of the incident, and it was quickly forgotten. Soon after the family moved in, Carolyn was in the kitchen one day when she heard the sound of movement upstairs. She thought that it was her five-year-old daughter April playing in her room since it was just the two of them in the house that day. But when April walked into the kitchen, Carolyn realized that it wasn't her that was walking around up there. Carolyn ran upstairs thinking that there was an intruder in the house, but there was no one up there. April came up and asked her mother what was wrong, and Carolyn told her that she just thought that she heard sounds coming from upstairs. April said, Probably. I hear sounds all the time up here. When Carolyn asked her to elaborate, the girl said that she didn't want to talk about it. A few days later, Roger came home from one of his long and frequent business trips. Carolyn told him that she had been hearing strange sounds and that she had seen shadowy things moving around the house. She also told him that she felt as if she was being watched all the time. Roger said that the light was probably just playing tricks on her, and he tried to comfort her by telling her how safe it was where they lived. Carolyn noticed that the front hallway connecting the kitchen to the dining room was the most unsettling part of the house. Their dog refused to pass through it, regardless of any treats they would offer him. The children always moved quickly through that hallway, and no one ever lingered long near the cellar door. It was here where the girls had seen the mysterious man standing in the corner on the day they moved into the house. Seven-year-old Cindy was the first member of the family to make actual contact with a spirit. One morning, the school bus had arrived, but she wasn't ready to go yet. As all of her sisters were leaving to catch the bus, she rushed through the kitchen into the hallway. As she stepped through the kitchen door, Cindy saw a dark, smoky figure emerge through the cellar door. It placed itself directly in her path. She was running so fast that there was no time to stop, and she slammed into the figure, and it disappeared. But as soon as the two collided, an intense odor of rotting flesh and frigid air stopped her in her tracks. Breathing in this foul air caused her to cough convulsively. She ended up getting so physically ill from the experience that she spent the next two days in bed. A few days after moving in, the house became infested with flies. After battling them for weeks, Roger finally called an exterminator. By the time he arrived, all of the flies had mysteriously disappeared. He saw dead flies littering the windowsills and floors, but he couldn't find a single living fly in the house. After he left, the flies returned that same afternoon, then they totally disappeared a few weeks later. Now, there was a large standalone chalkboard in the house that Andrea used to teach her younger sisters on, but anything that she or the other children wrote on it always ended up getting erased in the middle of the night. Sometimes the writing was marred with streaks that made the writing illegible. Other times, it looked as if someone had wiped the entire board clean with a wet cloth. 
One spring day, Andrea and her father decided to move the chalkboard to the woodshed because it was a nicer place to play now that the weather was warmer. At first, the writing stayed on the board, but after several days, it once again became smudged and unreadable. One morning, the girls walked into the woodshed and found that the board was twisted at a 90-degree angle. Seeing this, Andrea became fed up with the ghost's interference, so she spoke out loud to it. She said that she was tired of the writing being erased, and she cursed at the spirit. It turned out that this wasn't a good idea. Several days later, Roger went out to the woodshed and found the chalkboard had been thrown 20 feet across the room. It was smashed to pieces and had to be thrown away. In addition to the farmhouse, there was a barn on the property with a hayloft that had been used to store hay for the animals back when it was a working farm. Carolyn was considering getting a pony or a horse for the girls, and she wanted to see if the barn had stables. So one day, she decided to explore the space. As she was walking around the interior of the barn, she began to hear a strange, repetitive swishing sound. Suddenly, a hand scythe, the type used for cutting and baling hay, came flying through the air towards her, spinning in circles like a boomerang. As it got closer to her, it hovered overhead while spinning in place. Then, without warning, it plunged down towards her. Carolyn was frozen in place, unable to move a muscle. The rusty blade cut across her neck and shoulder, but her leather coat saved her from being injured. Her jacket was destroyed. She picked up the tool and put it on a nail. Carolyn was stunned by the attack, but even more surprised at her lack of reaction to the event. Several months would pass before she told Roger what had happened. One day, their neighbor Mrs. Pettigrew came over to visit. Carolyn was in the shower when she arrived, but she quickly got out to get dressed. As she stepped into an adjacent room to retrieve her clothes, a large coat hanger lifted from the rack beside her, then began striking her repeatedly on her head and neck. Carolyn started screaming, and everyone, including the house guests, came running. They entered the room, and all of them witnessed the attack. Once the beating subsided, the coat hanger fell to the floor. Mrs. Pettigrew stayed just long enough to see that Carolyn was okay, then she politely excused herself. But before she left, she said to Carolyn, The Kenyans always kept the lights on overnight. All the lights. Every night. Mrs. Pettigrew left and never returned again. Roger was away on business at the time, so that night Carolyn and the girls all slept together. Up to this point, Carolyn hadn't told Roger about what had been going on in the house. But when she finally did breach the subject of their new home being haunted, Roger was naturally skeptical. The couple fought about it, Carolyn insisting that she was not delusional and Roger telling her that he didn't believe in ghosts. This back-and-forth arguing about the paranormal activity in the house would go on for some time before Roger finally became a believer. One spirit that the girls named Manny seemed to be a protector. He was the ghostly man that the girls had seen the day the family moved in. He seemed to be a kind, gentle spirit, 
a peaceful, benevolent apparition who seemed to stand vigil, keeping a watch over the family. The girls described his mild expression as one of amusement or concern, depending on the circumstances. In the book, he's described in such detail that one has to wonder if the girls created his backstory themselves. They describe him as, and I'm quoting here, a sympathetic soul, his goodness evident to all who sensed his presence. They also said that he was aloof and unattached to the places where he appeared. But apparently, the girls were able to see him quite clearly. They were able to describe his distinctive facial expressions, and they said that he took an interest in those that he was observing. But Manny wasn't the only ghost the girls were able to see. One group of spirits they called the Baker Boys, named after the family that lived in the house years earlier. In the book, Andrea wrote, the Baker Boys never noticed the presence of human beings. It was strange to encounter them, usually on the landing of the bedroom stairs. They'd stare straight through those who witnessed them as the father and son serenely surveyed their fine property from the portal disguised as a window. One night, when Roger was away on business, Carolyn got up in the middle of the night to check on a sound that she had heard. It sounded as if logs were burning in the fireplace. She had a fire going in the newly opened fireplace earlier that night, but when she checked before going to bed, it was totally out. Carolyn could see the fireplace from her bedroom, and the fire was definitely out. It was then that she realized that the sound wasn't coming from the parlor. It was coming from the room that she was in. She turned around in a panic and saw the top of the bedroom dresser engulfed in fire. The flames shot across the room and embers dropped onto her quilt and drifted over to the lace curtains. Carolyn tried to get up to put the fire out, but she was literally frozen in place. Then, just as quickly as it had started, the fire vanished before her eyes. She was released from the mysterious paralysis and fell to the floor. Carolyn searched the room for signs of singe marks or fallen embers, but the room was totally clean. There was no lingering smoke odor or signs of ashes anywhere. In The Conjuring, the main demonic character is Bathsheba. For once, the movie used something from the books. But once again, the incidents in the book don't resemble those in the movie. During the ten years that the family lived there, Carolyn had done a lot of research about the house. She discovered that in the mid-1800s, a man named Judson Sherman and his wife Bathsheba lived next door to the parents' farm. One day, tragedy struck when an infant mysteriously died in her care. The doctor who examined the body said that the child had died as a result of a needle being driven through the base of its skull. There was an inquest into what happened, but there was no evidence that Bathsheba did anything to deliberately harm the baby. She was exonerated of the accusations, and the case was dismissed. But that didn't stop the community from considering her a murderer and a witch for the rest of her life. How Bathsheba died is a bit of a mystery. In the movie, she hung herself from a tree in the yard. But in a television interview with Carolyn, she said that Bathsheba hung herself in the barn. 
This leads us to a podcast interview with Andrea, who said that Bathsheba Sherman lived a long life, which suggests that she probably died of natural causes. So the jury is still out about what actually happened to the woman. Whatever was the actual cause of Bathsheba's death, Andrea defended her. She said Bathsheba had four children. Three of them did not survive past the age of four. She lived a very long and miserable life with the sword of guilt hanging over her head, so I am her great defender. I can't absolve her of anything that she was accused of, but I can say that I don't think that anyone should be accused of murder without there being some legitimate evidence. The townspeople accused her of practicing witchcraft and of selling her soul to the devil with the sacrifice of the infant. There isn't any evidence, any proof, that she was practicing the dark arts. She's buried in hallowed ground at the Riverside Cemetery in Rhode Island. The church would never have allowed her to be buried where she is if she was involved in witchcraft. I think it was all just rumor and innuendo. That said, in her book, Andrea doesn't hold back about Bathsheba's negative and seemingly demonic presence at the farm. In one interview, she said, My mother was never allowed to assume her rightful position as mistress of the house. That's the bottom line. We moved into that house as a mother, a father, and five children, and whatever the spirit was that taunted and haunted my mother so supremely was not willing to relinquish that position. What she did was she treated my mother abominably. She loathed my mother, and she lusted after my father. Lusted. I use that word deliberately. The first time Bathsheba made herself known to Carolyn was truly terrifying, and it's one of the many stories in the book that should have been included in the movie. Early one morning, just before sunrise, Carolyn woke up because she heard footsteps coming into the room. She thought it was one of the girls, so she opened her eyes. There, in the pale dawn light, was a grotesque figure of a woman standing where the dresser was. But she wasn't standing in front of the dresser. This ghostly figure was actually part of it, as if she was somehow standing in the middle of it. As she stepped forward, Carolyn could see that the woman was wearing a green garment cinched at the waist with a fabric belt that was held in place by an oval buckle. The woman's neck looked as if it was broken as her head hung to one side. Her face had no eyes or mouth, and she had no hands or feet. This grotesque figure walked slowly out of the dresser and up to Carolyn's side of the bed. In her head, Carolyn could hear herself shrieking as the spirit drew nearer, but no sound actually came out of her mouth. She kicked Roger repeatedly to wake him up, but he slept on. When the hag put her black stick of an arm across Carolyn's pillow, she quickly stood up in bed to get away from it. Carolyn stared in horror at the creature. It had no face, only a swirling, rancid mass of rotting flesh that resembled a hornet's nest covered with black cobwebs. The hideous apparition moved closer to the bed, then floated above Carolyn until its face was just inches away from hers. 
The grisly specter gave off a repulsive odor of rotting flesh that made Carolyn wretch, but she couldn't move to get away from it. As the fiendish, faceless head moved closer and closer, Carolyn whispered, God, help me. And at that, the creature vanished. After Bathsheba's terrifying visit, Carolyn didn't have any other paranormal incidents for about a year. Little did she know, the children were experiencing plenty, and the girls finally told their mother what had been happening to them. Cindy said that her toys moved around her room. She would set them up one way and leave the room for a few minutes. When she returned, they would be in totally different positions. Sometimes they would even end up in different places, like in the closet or under the bed. Christine said that her toys also moved around the room. Nancy told her mother that she hears loud, heavy footsteps coming up the stairs that stop at her door. Sometimes, when she's in the room by herself, her closet door opens all the way by itself. She also said that things go missing which turn up later in odd places. She said that sometimes her room suddenly gets terribly cold, and when it does, a rancid smell like a dead animal fills the room. She also said that she feels like she's being watched all the time. One day, Nancy came down the stairs, then turned the corner to walk down the hall to the kitchen. There was a telephone on a table in the hallway, and Nancy said that she saw the telephone handset was off the hook and floating in the air. When she saw it, it suddenly dropped onto the cradle. Nancy told Carolyn that she sees shadows on the walls in her bedroom at night and something that looks like a black cloud that moves around the room. She also said that the doors open and close in front of her, or they slam in her face right when she's trying to go through to another room. Cindy said that the refrigerator door opens by itself and stuff spills out, and that her bed shakes at night, so much so that it moves around. She said that her sister Christine helps her move the bed back in place in the morning. Cindy also said that a little girl walks through her room, crying for her mommy. Several weeks after informing Carolyn that they were experiencing these strange things in the house, Cindy had a truly terrifying experience. She was playing in her bedroom when an entity materialized in front of her and floated just above the surface of the floor. The apparition was that of a woman, and from her description, it was the same fiendish woman that Carolyn had seen, Bathsheba. Cindy said that the woman's head had no features. It was just a grayish, oval mass cocked to one side. The woman drifted across the room with her arms outstretched toward the terrified child, and the air suddenly reeked of death. Cindy could hear the woman talking to her in her head. Come here, little girl, the hideous woman said. Come to me. As it got closer, Cindy could see that the woman wore a full-length skirt that went nearly all the way to the floor, but she had no feet. She wore a gray flannel blouse that was cinched tightly at the waist by a flowery apron, and there was a white handkerchief dangling from beneath the ruffled edge of one of her shirt sleeves. Cindy felt as if she was paralyzed. The fiend positioned herself in front of the terrified girl, then moved closer and closer. All the while, the woman kept telling Cindy to come to her. 
Just as the creature was leaning in close to her face, Cindy begged God to help her. At that, she was suddenly free to move. She bolted from the room and ran downstairs to her mother. She told Carolyn about the strange apparition and how the lady came through the chimney closet door and tried to take her away with her. She's so scary. I'm so afraid. She tells me that she loves me, Mom, Cindy said between sobs. She said she loves me and that she wants me to be with her. When Roger got home from another long business trip, Carolyn filled him in on what had been going on in the house. But Roger still refused to accept that the house was either cursed or haunted, in spite of the fact that he often said that the place smelled like rotting flesh, and he too had felt a terrible cold envelop him from time to time. The couple argued about it, then went to bed that night and slept soundly. But when they woke up in the morning, they found that their bed had moved halfway across the room and was placed at a crooked angle. Jesus Christ, Roger said. What the hell is going on here? I told you last night, Carolyn said. Hell is happening here. That morning, Roger went down to the kitchen to make a pot of coffee. He had asked Carolyn if she wanted to join him, but she told him that she just wanted to be alone. She was angry that he still didn't believe that their house was haunted. Roger went down to the kitchen and started the morning ritual of making coffee. He walked into the pantry and took down the tin of coffee, then he started measuring it out into the percolator's basket. He was relieved when he felt the steady, gentle stroke of a woman's hand across his shoulders, then down along his back. Carolyn must have reconsidered joining him for a cup of coffee, he thought. Changed your mind, he asked, turning around, but there was no one behind him. He searched the kitchen, then the entire bottom floor of the house. He was entirely alone. When he returned to their bedroom, he found Carolyn still in bed, fast asleep. Things seemed to settle down for a while, but one day they started up again. Carolyn was sitting on the sofa across from the fireplace reading a book. Four of the girls were sitting on the floor, and Andrea was sitting at the dining room table with her homework spread out in front of her. As Andrea got up to offer her mother to help with dinner, a solid blue, tubular beam of light shot down the chimney. It snuffed out the flames, then turned at a right angle and shot across the room and landed directly on Carolyn's book. Everyone in the room saw this, and they all let out a gasp. A split second later, the light beam went back along the exact same route it had traveled and shot up the chimney. As terrifying as the events had been up to this point, they were about to get much worse for Carolyn. One night, she woke up in the middle of the night because she felt the bed vibrating. A foul stench filled the air and it became bitterly cold. Suddenly, the room was ablaze with light. Carolyn stared in amazement around her bed. Surrounding the bed were between eight and ten men dressed in old-fashioned clothing. Each held a wooden torch at the end of a long staff, and two ghostly barefoot boys were stationed at each side of the footboard. Carolyn tried to wake Roger up by shaking him and pulling his hair, but it was no use. The group of men began banging on the floor with their torches in unison. Then they chanted the following warning. Beseech thee leave, 
afore ye go, beware the flame, the fiery glow, was mistress once afore ye came, and mistress here will be again. We'll drive ye out with fiery broom, we'll drive ye mad with death and gloom. A female entity emerged from the crowd and floated towards Carolyn. It was Bathsheba. Once again, Carolyn could see that her neck was broken and her head hung to one side. But this time, the hag had a face. Her eyes were black, hollow sockets, and her nose was rotting off. The creature slowly smiled at Carolyn, revealing a mouth full of chipped, jagged yellow teeth. Leaning over the terrified woman, Bathsheba repeated the warning that the others had chanted before. Was mistress once afore ye came, and mistress here will be again. Then the repulsive woman floated over to Roger and leaned in as if she was going to kiss him. Carolyn closed her eyes and prayed, and the figures vanished. After the family had lived in the house for about two years, ten-year-old Cindy and her friend Laurie, who lived down the street, decided to hold a seance to exorcise the demon. They held it in a room the family called the Borning Room. They lit a white candle, then Cindy began calling out to the spirits. As soon as she did, an intense cold crept into the room and Cindy wanted to stop the seance, but her friend reminded her of the story she had told her about the house and how she needed to get rid of the ghosts. Spirits of this house, whoever you are, come to us now. Ghosts of this house, I'm calling to you. If you are here, give us a sign. Nothing happened. We want you to stop coming and scaring us. It's our house now. You do not belong here anymore. Go away. Go. Be with God. As soon as she said this, a freezing cold wind blew through the room and blew the candle out. Then, Lori felt something tugging at her hair. Cindy's hair was also pulled by invisible hands, and she was forcibly pulled down to the floor and held in place. Lori was still sitting, but something had a hold of her, too, and she was unable to move. The girls screamed to each other for help. Suddenly, items that had been stored in the room began flying around at light speed. Some hovered in the air. Others were thrown about. Pieces of a mannequin danced around them. Its individual legs hopped around the room as a pair. A pair of mattresses that had been leaning against the wall began flip-flopping from side to side, and both girls were repeatedly struck by invisible hands. We're sorry, Cindy screamed. Please let us go. We didn't mean it. We'll never do it again. Please, God. Lori was freed, and a vile stench filled the room. Cindy told her to run and get help, but when Lori tried to open the door, it was frozen shut. Cindy was finally released and the girls tried the door, but it still wouldn't open. Cindy relit the candle, then said aloud, Dear God, please help us. Please come to us. My sweet Lord, please come to me now. All of a sudden, everything stopped at once. Objects that had been suspended in midair fell to the floor with a crash, and the wind stopped. The girls ran to the door, and it opened easily. They were terrified, but they agreed to keep what they did a secret. 
It wasn't until the Warrens came to the house that Cindy finally admitted that she and her friend had held a seance. Now, as terrifying as the experience had been, it seems that Cindy didn't learn a lesson from it. A year or so later, Christine, Cindy, and Nancy decided to use the Ouija board to get rid of the ghosts. They sat on the floor in one of the girls' rooms and put their hands lightly on the planchette. Who is inside this house? Christine asked. A low, guttural moan began to erupt within the room. Seconds later, it erupted into a lion-like roar. Suddenly, the dark shadow of a wild, ferocious animal appeared on the wall, then moved slowly around the room. It looked to be a cross between a lion and a wolf, and it moved as if it was in the room with them. They all felt consumed by an intensely evil presence. The bedroom became permeated with a repulsive odor, and the temperature plummeted. The floor began to vibrate, and the creature continued to roar. They could see it throw back its head and show its dripping teeth. The distant sound of percussive booming began to fill the room, and the sounds got louder and louder until the glass in the windows rattled. The girls gagged from the stench that filled the room. They huddled together for protection, but they were unable to move. The figure finally turned to them, threw back its hideous head, and unleashed a deafening, growling roar before releasing them from its spell. The girls ran out of the room, practically knocking their mother down who was just coming down the hall. Their father was asleep on the couch. Neither had heard anything. One of the biggest differences between The Conjuring movie and the books is the way the Warrens are portrayed. In the movie, we see them as intense, paranormal investigators who care deeply about the family and who freed them from Bathsheba's curse. But in the books, Andrea blames the Warrens for making the situation worse by holding a seance in the house. She also accuses them of stealing her mother's notebook that contained the history of the house and of the haunting itself. The Warrens make their appearance in the second book in the House of Darkness, House of Light series. Unlike the movie, where Carolyn seeks out their help, in the book, they just kind of show up at the door one day. Andrea wrote, In October of 1973, the Warrens first made their presence known. Having been recently informed that the Rhode Island family was in serious trouble, they made the trip from Connecticut with nothing but a surname and address to go on. Andrea wrote that the Warrens visited the farm many times over the course of a year and a half but they never stayed overnight as was depicted in the movie. During their investigation, Lorraine told the parents that there were many spirits present in the house and that there was also a demonic presence. During a walkthrough of the lower floor of the house, Lorraine entered Carolyn and Roger's bedroom. She stopped, shuddered, and said, No one should sleep in this bedroom. In the kitchen, she told the couple that she felt waves of negative energy coming from the pantry. Terrible, she said. Something awful happened in there. Violent. The poor thing. So young. A girl. Blood. Definitely a female. The Warrens returned a few weeks later. When Lorraine interviewed the children, Cindy told her how she heard voices in her head telling her that there were seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. 
She said that the room gets freezing cold when she hears them talking. She also said that she sees a little girl who cries for her mommy, and that there was a woman with a broken neck who came to her and said that she loved her. The Warrens told Carolyn and Roger that the children were in danger and that Cindy was the target. Something wants her to cross over, Ed said. This is extremely distressing. Make no mistake, this love she speaks of is only an enticement. It is evil in disguise. I must tell you, these children are in danger of becoming the victims of demonic oppression or possession, and so are both of you. Before leaving, Ed said to Roger, We consider it imperative to cleanse the premises, to identify and expel spirits from your house. Malignant or benign, they must go, especially for the sake of your defenseless children and your vulnerable wife. During a return visit, Lorraine witnessed a container of pencils flying off of the table in one of the girls' rooms. As she walked around the house, she said, I pick up on psychic vibrations around me, and I have never felt so much energy in a house before. There are so many of them. Most of them are earthbound spirits who fail to make their proper transition, but there is evil here as well, and all of you are vulnerable to it. We need to expel the demonic presence from this house before it can do any more damage to anyone. Now, surprisingly, there are no details of the Warren seance in the books, but Andrea has spoken about it in interviews. In one, she said, I was 15 years old when the Warrens came in 1973. They conducted an investigation over a period of about a year and a half, which culminated in a seance that went horribly wrong. Unlike in the film, it did not happen in the cellar. It happened in the dining room. I was never one to believe in demons. I knew evil existed, and I still don't know exactly what a demon is. But I will tell you that they brought a priest and a medium with them to the house, and that they inadvertently opened a door that they could not close. The medium invited spirits in, and with them came something which attacked my mother. If she was possessed, it was only for a brief period of time, but I saw it all with my own eyes. What I know is that whatever attacked her was not of this world. It spoke through her in a language that does not exist on this planet. It levitated her in the chair that she was in, and within a split second when it was done curling her body into a ball that you would have expected to hear bones breaking, it threw her into the adjacent parlor about 20 feet away in literally a split second. In another interview, Andrea talked about the family's relationship with the Warrens after the seance. She said, When they left the house that night, they didn't know if my mother was dead or alive. They came back a couple of months later to see if she was still with us, and when my mother opened the door and she saw that it was them, she wouldn't let them in. She asked that they return her notebook that Mrs. Warren had borrowed that had all of her recollections and all of the historical research she did on the property. When she borrowed it, Mrs. Warren had sworn to my mother that she would return it to her after she Xeroxed everything in it, but she failed to do so. My mother was just disgusted, and she just closed the door and said, We're all done here. We never saw that notebook again. It's my understanding, through one of the producers of the film, that my mother's notebook with all her sketches and descriptions of what happened in the house were sold as part of the case files.
We were told that we should have no expectation of ever seeing that notebook again, which my mother considered part of her legacy to leave her children, so that's a very sore point. But this was not the last time the Warrens would get in touch with Carol and Perrin. Andreas said, When we moved out of the house, we thought it was our great escape. My mother told my dad that if we didn't sell the place, that she wouldn't survive another winter there. He believed her, so we sold the place and bought a house in Georgia. My mom did not have any contact with the Warrens for the next six years. Then, in August of 1980, she got a call from Mrs. Warren. She said that she wanted to tell our story in a book or a movie. She offered my parents a boatload of money, and my mother immediately said no. Lorraine said, you have to at least discuss this with your husband. That night, Dad came home, but Mom hadn't mentioned Lorraine's offer to him yet. She went down to throw a load of laundry in the washing machine, and a 200-pound door that was bolted to a wall came down on top of her and dislocated her shoulder and gave her a concussion. When Mrs. Warren called back the next morning, my mother said, Absolutely not, Lorraine. I don't need to discuss this with my husband. Please don't contact us again. If you're interested in reading about some of the other paranormal events the family experienced at the farmhouse, then I encourage you to read all three books of House of Darkness, House of Light. As I said, there's a massive amount of material there, but don't let that put you off. I found myself perusing the books much the way one walks through an art museum. You glance at some paintings, pass by those that don't interest you, and stop and linger at the ones that fascinate or move you. And I promise, there is a lot to fascinate and terrify in Miss Perrin's books. In closing, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Andrea that best sums up her experience over those ten years. She said, I think living at the farmhouse made me a better person. It caused me to think about everything. From a very early age, I learned lessons that there are consequences for our actions. Bathsheba's history scared me, and it taught me that there is evil in the world, but good always overcomes evil. I believe that. As time went on, I wasn't as scared because there was so much love between us in that house and also with the spirits. I always felt protected, all the time. I learned never to challenge an incredibly powerful force, as it taught me that something more powerful than evil exists. It rescued me when I got into trouble, not always as fast as I wanted, but something always came to help me, every single time. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.